0: We are almost there, folks. Revelation chapter 20, uh, and if you would please stand as we honor the reading of God's Word as Miss Mariah Potter reads to us this morning.
1: Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations in the The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand
0: years. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. I pray that uh, it would speak to our hearts today. Um, I pray for those who... Maybe it would have a tendency today to, to get upset with the particulars of this text or maybe the way that we, we go with it today, that you would guard their heart against that today uh, and that we would see, as we've said so clearly throughout the beginning uh, of this whole sermon series, is that we can disagree on the timeline but the theme still remains the same and so the theme we see today is this, is that there is coming a day when the books will be open. And every one of us in this room, no matter who we are, no matter how awesome we think we are, no matter uh, where we stand socio- uh, economically, or, or where we stand uh, just uh, politically or, or whatever it is, we will stand before the King of Kings and we will give an account. And on that day, either our name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life or it's not. And so I pray today that if there's someone in here that doesn't know you, that today they would, they would trust in you and that you would save them today. For us as believers, help us to see that, 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 that you've already won a victory for us and that now we're, we're, we're fighting from that victory and that we've got a lot of work to do until you come back. And it's in your name we pray, amen. Uh, you can have a seat. I'll be honest, uh, when we got into Revelation, I really wasn't worried about any of it until we get to chapter 20. And here we are. So there's absolutely no shortage of controversy when it comes to today's text. Uh, And I would say that this is the chapter that causes the most trouble when it comes to the study uh, of Revelation. And the thing about this chapter is it all revolves around one phrase. It revolves around the phrase 1,000 years. So, So six times in this chapter, John uses the phrase in verses two, three, four, five, six, and seven. Now listen to me on this. This is the only place in the entire Bible where you see the phrase 1,000 years. And so what has happened is that whole systems of theology have been built around this one phrase. Whole political ideologies have been built around this one phrase. And so as I was studying this week, one of the things I, I didn't realize was that if you go back to the 1940s, the Third Reich... Nazi Germany, the Third Reich just meant the Third Kingdom, and do you know what they believed? Based on this text, this was one of Hitler's favorites, is that they would rule for a thousand years, okay? So political ideologies have come out of this, and listen, some of them right here in America. There's a reason why there was a church last week that led its congregation in a Let's Go Brandon chant during the worship service because of their political ideology around this verse. Do you understand that? okay? That, that's a blasphemous thing to do. We've talked about that, right? That, that is dragon-manipulated political power, the false prophet taking hold of getting in a church and causing them to say things like that and taking the focus off of Jesus Christ and putting it on something they never should have put it on, all right? So I'm telling you, there's a lot of controversy. Now, I'm going to go through this. There's three major approaches to this text, And and what I'm doing is I'm going through the three classic approaches to this text, right? There is a fourth one. It's called uh, dispensational premillennialism. That's a whole other beast. I ain't even touching that, all right? We're just going to say, put it over here. Um, The three schools of thought are, are very quickly this. The one that we're probably most familiar with is what is known as premillennialism. Which means that we have the church age, which we're currently living in now, and that one day Jesus will come back, rapture the church, and then he will reign on this earth for a literal thousand years. During that time, Satan will be bound, and at the end of that thousand years, Satan will be let out for a final battle into which Jesus will vanquish him, and then we'll usher in the new heavens and the new earth, okay? Like I said, that is classic premillennialism. That's not dispensationalism, so don't get them confused. The other one is is what's called amillennialism. It teaches that Satan was bound at the first coming of Christ, that we're currently living in the thousand years described, and that the number is merely symbolic. And as we approach the second coming of Christ, things will get worse. There will be a great persecution coming. There will be a great purging of Christ's church. And then following that, there will be one final battle as Satan is led out We know it's never fought. Jesus returns, and he ushers in the new heavens and the new earth. The third view, and the last one, is post-millennialism. Now, this one teaches that after Jesus rose again, we entered into the, 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 the church age, and at the end of the church age, Satan will be bound, and then that will usher in a thousand years, maybe, give or take. They don't know if it's figurative or literal, but a thousand years of human flourishing, in which Christians will be kind of in charge of everything, and which uh, like things will get better because believers now kind of are ruling and reigning here on the earth. And at the end of those thousand years, Satan will be let out for the final battle, and Jesus will return. Now, listen to me. Godly Bible teachers fall into all of these camps. Godly men and women have studied these scriptures. They've written books on them. They love the Lord, and they take his word seriously. Amen? So when you choose a view, understand this. You are not choosing between conservative or liberal, no matter what some people think. You're not choosing between those who believe in the divine inspiration of scripture and the Bible and those who don't. I'm way conservative when it comes to my theology. Way And I believe in the inspiration of scripture. So just because I fall into a camp that you don't doesn't make me a liberal. It doesn't make me saying that I don't believe in the the authority of the Bible, all right? One commentator put it this way, and I think this is so helpful to keep in mind. He says, each system sees something in Revelation to which the others are blind or which the others choose not to take into account. Each option grasps both truth and misses Truth Neither of the three systems is watertight. How could it be otherwise? No attempt to systemize the biblical witness can do justice to the whole of the witness. Now listen to this last part. No human-designed biblical system can finally replace the biblical text itself. Very good to keep in mind. All three of these systems have merit. So the all mill position, that's the one that's been around the longest. It's been around since the second century. You go back, the early church believed in this position. Augustine, Calvin, all the reformers, this is where they landed. So it has the merit of being trying to be faithful to the text the longest. The post-meal position, they have the highest degree of confidence that things will get better. Their optimism is, is unmatched. If you ever read their books, they are so confident that Christians will usher in this year, this, this time of flourishing with the help of the Holy Spirit, that, that, that they're so positive about everything to where I'm like, I don't see how that happens, man. And then finally, if you just want people that, are, that have zeal about the return of the Lord, look at your pre-meal guys and gals. Their zeal for the return of the Lord is stronger than anybody else's. The bottom line is this, all right? When we get to heaven, no matter how the timeline shakes out, nobody's going to have their feelings hurt, right? I mean, when we get there, and if I'm wrong and you're right, I'm going to be like, man, you son of a gun, you nailed it, right? High five, chest bomb, let's do it. We made it. So nobody's going to be angry about it. Daryl Johnson sums it up really well. He says all positions agree on three things. The best is yet to come. The future is not up for grabs, it belongs to Christ. And third, the future is not in our hands. So, so keep that in mind today, because I'm gonna argue more from an all-meal perspective, and the reason I'm doing that is because I believe it gives us a great sense of purpose for the church right here, right now, on earth, as we rate the turn of Christ, okay? So look with me if you will. Revelation chapter 20. Let's look at verses one through six. So John says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and he bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the pit and he shut it and he sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshiped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands, and they came to life and they reigned with Christ for a 1,000 years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the 1,000 years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So we've got to remember, and I've said this from the start, it's never about what happens next, it's about what John sees next. Next. The clearest example of this and showing us that it's not chronological is Revelation 12, right? Because if you're reading this whole thing in a timeline, you get to Revelation 12 and you're like, wait a minute. It's like all of a sudden he jumped back to the beginning of time. He jumped back to the prophecy that was made about the one who was coming to crush the head of the serpent. He goes back to Christmas Eve on the night that Jesus was born. So it's not chronological. It's always about what he sees next. And so throughout this book, here's been the pattern. John has taken us right to the end of time, and then he's recapitulated back. That word recapitulate, we use the example of a football game. We're going to go watch the Cowboys today. We're going to beat the Chiefs, and we're going to see all these different camera angles during the game, right? You're going to see one from the end zone. they got those crazy pylon cams now. You'll see one from overhead. That's what Revelation's doing. It's showing you the same thing just from different camera angles. So he gives us seven seals, And then we get to the end, and he starts over with seven trumpets. Then we go back to show the whole of human history in in Revelation 12, the battle that we're fighting in now between the dragon and between the lamb. Then we get seven bowls. Then we get to the end of time. We see the mayor's supper of the lamb. We see the final battle. And right here in chapter 20, John's doing the whole thing all over again. Now we're going back And this time he sees a great angel come down. Now the other thing is this, anytime John sees a great angel come down in the book of Revelation, it always means we're going back. You can go back and check it out on your own if you want later, but every time he sees an angel come down, we're going back. So he says we're gonna go back. And what he sees is this angel comes down with a great chain and he locks up Satan and he binds him for a thousand years. So here's where the controversy comes in. So when is this millennial reign? When did it happen? Is it gonna happen? Are we in it? Well, here's what I would argue. If you look at the temptation of Jesus in Mark chapter one, verses 12 through 13, it says this. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. So he's in the wilderness. Satan's obviously not bound. He's doing battle with Satan. And then on the heels of Jesus coming out of the wilderness, in Mark chapter one, in verse 14, it says, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. We've done this before, but remember the gospel that word, it's Greek, it's euangelion. It means good news. It was used by Roman generals to convey a message. So the Roman generals, they would go to battle, they would have a war, they would fight, and then they would send a runner on in ahead of them to the next town. That runner would come into town, he would go to the town square, and he would let everybody know that, hey, I've brought an euangelion. I've brought good news. Somebody's fought a battle for you, and they've won, and you're not gonna be slaves today. You're not going to die today. And so Jesus, on the heels of doing battle with Satan in the wilderness, turns right around, and he says, hey, I've got good news. I've just fought him. I've just beat him. I I stood up to his temptations. He couldn't trip me up like the first Adam because I'm the second Adam, I'm better. I did what none of you can do. I fought and I won. And you no longer have to worry about dying. You don't have to worry about being slaves anymore because I've won a battle for you. And then if you keep reading Mark, it all of a sudden goes into all these stories where Jesus begins to free people from the grip of the demonic. He, he, he casts out demons. He heals people. And the reason is, as he wants us to know, is that the leader of the demonic forces has been restricted. In Mark chapter three, I talked about this earlier, Jesus is accused of being in league with Satan and that all of the things he's doing are because he's working with Satan. And so in Mark three twenty-seven, Jesus tells the religious leaders that no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. So check it. In Greek, the word bind is deo. It's the exact same word that John uses in Revelation 20 verse two. See, he's making the point that his ministry of freeing people from the demonic is because Jesus is the stronger man. That Jesus has went into the house, he has bound Satan, and now he's plundering Satan's house. He's taking all of his things. Right before he goes to the cross, John 12, verses 31 and 32. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He's saying, I can do all these things because the one who had the grip is losing his grip. And then after Jesus rises from the dead, he's preparing to return to the Father. He says this, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the father and of the son and of the holy spirit teaching them to observe all that i have commanded you and behold i am with you always to the end of the age so in revelation 20 verse 3 it says that satan can deceive the nations any longer can't see the evangelistic work of the world can happen because jesus has bound the deceiver We're not not fighting for victory, we're fighting from victory. Jesus has already won. That doesn't mean that Satan isn't at work. So this is where people will get all up in arms. Like, well, but the Bible talks about he's a roaring lion and he's doing all these things. Absolutely, he's got two henchmen. You remember them? The beast and the false prophet. The beast is dragon-manipulated political power. The false prophet is dragon-manipulated religious power. They're constantly roaming this earth trying to get us to take our eyes off of Jesus. And I want you to notice something in the book of Revelation. Hadn't heard about Satan in a long time, have we? Chapter 13 was the last time Hebrews brought up. And it was right after it talked about Jesus coming and taking care of the church and protecting his church. And then Satan brings up his two henchmen and then we haven't heard about him since then. So what you and I need to do is this. You need to think of Satan like a mob boss. Right, you guys watch mob movies. Right? That guy goes away to his cushy federal prison. But he's still calling the shots in there, isn't he? Mob bosses can do a whole lot behind bars. Like, How are these guys still doing it? Because they have all this power. That's exactly what Satan is doing from his cell. He's calling the shots. He's using his henchmen to get our eyes off Jesus and get us to worship other things. So saying Satan isn't bound doesn't mean he isn't dangerous. Martin Luther used to say that he's on a leash. It's a long one, but he's on a leash. You ever messed with a dog that's on a leash? You can still get bit, right? You get close to that dog, it'll still bite you. That's exactly what's going on with Satan. He still persecutes Christians, and he still causes harm, but what he tells us is that he can't deceive the nations. In other words, it means that Satan's goal is to incite a premature conflict, that Satan wants to provoke Armageddon before it's God's time, but he can't. Because the final assault will only come when the restriction God has placed on him is lifted, and right before the return of Christ, Satan will line his demonic hordes up, they'll gather for a great battle, and we already know it never happens. Jesus shows up, he speaks, it's all over. So this could come at the end of Jesus's thousand year literal reign. It may come at the end of a thousand years of human flourishing before the return of Christ or as I would argue, it could happen any day. See, I think we're living in the millennium and I I do because I think it's just a symbolic way of saying all the time between the ascension of Christ and his second coming. So let me show it to you this way. A thousand years is what? 10 times 10 times 10. 10 in the Bible is the number of completeness. 10 fingers, 10 toes, 10 commandments, So if you go 10 by 10, 10 times 10, 10 times 10 is a really complete number. 10 times 10 times 10 is a really, really complete number. So it could literally be a 1,000 years, it could be a lot more, or it could just be figurative. The point that John is making is this. However long a period of time it is, it's complete. It's enough time for God to completely complete his complete purpose in the world. It's a period of time under God's complete control, so look at it this way. In Psalm fifty ten, what does the psalmist say? That God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Does that mean the cattle on a, the thousand and first hill? Those are Will Jarvis's or somebody's? No, no. It's a symbolic way of saying that that He owns it all. That that all of those cattle are His. In verse four, John's encouraging those who are going through difficulty and potentially martyrdom. And he says, remain faithful to Jesus. Saying, guys, listen, you might die at the hands of the beast and the false prophet, but when you die, you will be with Jesus. You might die physically, but you will live spiritually. So that's what it means when we read in verse four about the first resurrection. This would have been relevant if you think back to the church in Smyrna. Remember back to chapter two, what did Jesus tell them? Do not fear what you're about to suffer, Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for 10 days, it's a number of completeness. It might be a literal 10 days for some of them. It might not be. Whatever it is, it's a complete number. Jesus is saying, you'll be tested. You're gonna suffer for a period of time. You're gonna have tribulation. But then he says, be faithful unto death, and I'll give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, and the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Notice the parallels there from chapter two to chapter 20, what he's saying is the faithful are exempt from the second death. See, the second death, that's separation from God forever in hell. That reminds us of Revelation chapter three, verse 21. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on the throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. So when a Christian dies, they enter into what theologians call the intermediate state. John in Revelation chapter two and three, he's speaking of the intermediate state as souls living beyond death. It's just a recapitulation of that here in chapter 20. John's saying when we die, in the Lord will reign with Christ until this perfect period of time is up, the trumpet sounds, and then we ride with him to earth to establish the new heavens and the new earth. And until that point, until that happens, you and I, Christians, believers, we've been given a mission. And that mission now is for us to plunder the enemy. We trust in Jesus. We know that he lived a perfect life for us, that he defeated Satan, that he died for us, and he's taking away our sin, he's rose again, he's conquering death, and he's coming back to get us. So while we wait, we're just gonna make some trouble for Satan and his boys. That's what we do. So wherever you and I as Christians see sin, wherever we see brokenness, we want to plunder the strong man's property. We want to take what ultimately belongs to the king. I mean, he's coming back to take it all anyways, isn't he? And so in between that, we've been given the great commission and the great command. Don't we talk about this every week? We, we want to go and make disciples of all nations. We want to baptize them. We want to tell people about Jesus. The way we want to do that is by loving the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, strength. When we do those things, people hear about Jesus. People are saved. So every act of obedience to Jesus is you plundering what belongs to the enemy. So listen, it could be in small things. It could be little bitty things. So it could be as parents looking at our kids and saying, hey, I'm sorry. Mommy and daddy need Jesus just as much as you do. I'm sorry for the way I've behaved and the way I've acted. Would you forgive me? It could be you owning up to how you've treated your husband or your wife. Baby, I'm sorry for the cruel things that I've said or I've done. Would you forgive me? You want to plunder the enemy? Get your home right. Satan doesn't like good homes. We're seeing that in our world right now. Get your home right. Plundering the enemy looks like loving our neighbors. It looks like showing hospitality. It looks like bringing people into our homes and sharing a meal and talking to them about Jesus. Plundering the enemy looks like getting in small groups and building relationships with other Christians and getting to know them and love them and care for them and pray for them. Plundering the enemy looks like forgiveness. I know they wronged me, but I'm gonna forgive them anyways. Saw a great quote this week that said, as Christians, we need to learn to accept less than we deserve and that we should never, ever retaliate. Plundering the enemy looks like loving one another in this room and loving one another with a love that's so strange to the world that they look at us and go, man, those people are so jacked up but yet they love one another. Like, it's so weird. Like, I don't even know how they get along with each other because they're so different, but yet they they love one another. Like, that's so weird. Plundering the enemy is to act in kindness. It's to give people the benefit of the doubt. I wrote Byron in my notes right there. I don't know why. I think the longer you're a pastor, the more of your naivety just goes away, right? The longer you're in one place, you're just like, Ah, oh, there's, there's no good people. Um, okay. Plundering the enemy means worshiping on Sundays. Mike said that a little bit ago. It's an act of defiance when we gather in here every week. And when we gather and we stand side by side, we hear the Bible taught, we sing to Jesus, it's, it's an act of defiance. It's an act of defiance to say, hey, listen, church won't be just an add-on. I heard a pastor say this week that, that sometimes we're so worried that it's the Democrats that's gonna get us and here's what he told his church. He goes, it ain't the Democrats, it's soccer. We don't play that up here, so it's, it's football. It's basketball. It's making those things more important. And don't hear me. Don't go, well, but I hate sports. You can't say that. I'm at everything. I love sports. And I've already told my daughter who's playing it. If you're in, I'm in, baby. Let's go. I'm I'm gonna support you, I'm gonna cheer you, but listen, that's still secondary to loving Jesus. Won't practice on Sunday, not my kid. Come to church. She might hate it. It's an act of defiance when we say, listen, church is gonna be the thing that we do. Not the thing that we do if we don't have anything better going on, the thing we do. So so from spearmen to the ends of the earth, the dragon has been bound and, and you and I have been set free to plunder. Look at me, we're not on our heels. We're not back going, oh, Satan's just winning. No, Jesus has already won. We already have the victory, so go get him. That's what it means. See, that's why I stand where I stand in regard to this text. It just tells me that Satan's locked up and I don't need to build a bunker and get all my rations and my meals and get scared because, oh, it's all gonna go to pot. No, I I can go steal his stuff because he ain't home. That's the point. So, so let's look at the rest of this real quick. So look at verse seven. So, so we've re- recapitulated back. Now we're coming to the end of the thousand years. We're going back to the end of history. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and he'll come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. In verse 11, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. He was thrown into the lake of fire. So Satan's bound during Jesus' first advent. At the predetermined time, whenever this thousand years is up, this symbolic period of time, I believe, he's gonna be let out. And then he's gonna gather his demonic horde from the four corners of the earth. We've discussed this. That was just a way of saying the entire earth in the ancient world, right? We got four winds of the earth, four corners of the earth. So he's going to get everybody that opposes Christ and he's going to gather them from the four corners of the earth. And then what John does is he references Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39. And in that chapter, and you've got to read it carefully, Ezekiel symbolically represents Gog and Magog. So Gog and Magog, Ezekiel's time's gone. They're ancient enemies from Israel's ancient past. So he's not saying Iran and China. Just tossing that out there. What he's saying is that Gog and Magog are representative of all of God's enemies, and that they will gather for one final battle. They're gonna line up for the battle, but what happens? Nothing, it's never fought. Fire falls from heaven, the devil joins his henchmen in the lake of fire, he gets locked up, he's thrown away, he's done with, and then the scary part begins because then judgment starts. Verse 12, everyone, great and small, says standing before this massive throne. That's John's way of saying everyone. Good joke, come on. Billionaires to the poorest of the poor, celebrities to the nobodies, everybody will stand before this throne and every single one of us will give an account for our lives. And it says as we stand before the throne, books are open. This is a reference to Jan- Daniel chapter 7 verse 10 where Daniel sees the king sitting in judgment and Daniel says the same thing, books are open. So it's working with the idea that our deeds are recorded in heaven's books. Folks, everything's there, you know that, right? Nothing is forgotten. Private deeds, public deeds. Private attitudes, public attitudes. Jesus himself said in Luke chapter 12, verses two and three, nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. So the book of our deeds will be opened up, and we will be judged according to our deeds. Now, I'm not saying you're saved by deeds. Don't think all of a sudden I've changed my position. We're not saved by our deeds, we're saved by Jesus Christ. But hear me our deeds reveal our values. Our deeds reveal our character. Our deeds reveal our allegiance. Deeds reveal what you and I really believe. All deeds emerge from what we put our trust in. Daryl Johnson says we always act in concert with what, with, the one, uh, with what we actually believe to be Lord of our life. So if money is Lord, uh, it shows in our deeds. If power is Lord, it shows in our deeds. If comfort is Lord, it shows in our deed. If fame is our Lord, it shows in our deeds. If Jesus is Lord, it shows in our deeds. And the greatest deed of all is putting all of our faith in Jesus Christ, in his great deeds. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny because he does. He alone. And I think what we do is we treat Jesus like a doctor a lot of times. So, so, so I'll give you a great example. Like, my, my dad has been in so many horse wrecks, it's not even funny. And I, I can remember all the times the guy would go to the doctor, the doctor would tell him to do something, and he's like, you know, I trust the doctor, I'm gonna go to the doctor, he's gonna fix me up, I'm gonna do what he says. And then does he ever do what the doctor said? No. The, the last one that I remember before I left home was he was riding a horse for a guy, um, horse throws him off, he breaks his collarbone. So he's not supposed to be doing anything which he doesn't for about two days, and then he goes back to doing everything. Well, I come home one day, he's standing in the kitchen getting a drink of water, got his shirt off. He's got a Band-Aid right here. What'd you do, Dad? What's, what's the Band-Aid for? Oh, God, I got out of the shower and my piece of my collarbone popped out of the skin. Really? Band-Aid gonna fix that, I guess? Yeah, it'll be all right, it'll be all right. No? No, dad, I don't, I don't think it will. I'm, let's go back to the doctor. He says he trusted the doctor, but he never did what the dang doctor told him to do. See, if we say we trust the doctor, we'll do what he tells us. It's the exact same with what Jesus, Jesus said that about us in Luke 6, 46. He says, why do you call me Lord and not do what I tell you? We'll be judged according to our deeds because deeds reveal what we really believe. And then it says there's another book that's open. This is the book of life. We, we sometimes refer to it as the Lamb's book of life. In Revelation 13, eight, we read about it. And it says, all who dwell on the earth will worship it. everyone whose name has not been written down before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. And I know that causes some problems because people go, wait a minute, our names were written down before the foundation of the world? Don't look at that as a bad thing, that's a good thing, that's good news. See, because of the power of sin, no one would ever choose to get their name on that list. So, unless the Lord breaks the power of sin, none of us would care. So, if you're in here and you're a little nervous and you're a little uptight about, well, man, I don't know if my name's in that book or not, it's most likely there. You wouldn't be worried about it if it wasn't there. You'd still be in your sin. Now today, if you know it's not there, as the gospel's been preached, you can respond in faith and trust. I'm not taking away your, 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 your choice at all, so don't go, oh, you took my choice. No. You can trust in Jesus today. And it says those whose names were not written in that book are thrown into the lake of fire. They're cast out, they're separated from God forever. That's the second death in verse 14. You notice the Bible never mentions the first death. You won't find it in there anywhere. You wanna know why? It's because we all die that death. He didn't need to mention the first death. We're all gonna die. We've all got an expiration date. The second death, that's for those of us who don't trust Jesus. That's not the one you wanna be a part of. Right? So, so what does all this mean for us? All of us in this room have a book of deeds. And trust me, there's gonna be a full accounting. God hasn't missed anything. I promise you, he hasn't. And that's a scary thought. That one day this book is going to be open and all your sins are going to be revealed. But it's also good news. Because if we're in Christ, although this book's gonna be open, if you know Jesus, and if you have done what 1 John verses one, verses eight through nine says, right? That if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness is that if you've trusted in Jesus as that book is opened up, there's going to be a lot of bad stuff in it. But then there's going to be line after line of red ink, line after line of sins that have been crossed out for those of us who have confessed our sin and asked for mercy. I mean, I'm scared to death of that book. It's probably going to take like three angels to get that sucker out, right? Like, here it is. Right, line after line of failure to trust Jesus. Line after line of dealing with pain in the wrong ways. And then guess what? Line after line all crossed out in red. Page after page of failure, but on every page, red ink. And the reason it's red ink is because it's a special pen. It's a pen that flows with the blood of Jesus. It's a pen that says, yeah, I paid for that. And then that other book's gonna be open. And yeah, it's got names in it. But the Lamb's Book of Life... It also lists the deeds of Jesus. Ever thought about that? It lists all the things that Jesus has done. The book on me lists my deeds, but his book lists his deeds that have been done on my behalf. His book says things like this in Isaiah 53, that he was pierced for our transgressions, that he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds were healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we've turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that was led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. His book says things like this in Isaiah 53, that my servant make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and he was numbered with the transgressors yet he bore the sin of many and he makes intercession for the transgressors. So on judgment day, the book on me is gonna be open but then the book of Jesus is gonna be open. He's gonna take that book of Jesus and he's gonna drop it on top of mine. He's going to say, yeah, you know what? That guy's got a lot of bad stuff on it, but don't look at that. Look at Jesus' book. Look at what he did. Look at his deeds in Byron's place. Look at the way he lived for Byron. Look at all that he did. He took his sin upon him. And in place of my deeds, the court will see the deeds of Jesus. Whew, that's good news. I tell this joke every funeral I do. But every one of you guys have heard this before. Is that so-and-so died and they met old St. Peter at the pearly gates. You heard that one? A little truth to that joke. The only difference is, is it won't be St. Peter that we meet. It's going to be God himself. And he's going to ask every one of us the same question. Why should I let you in? And we can all point to that book of deeds that we've got and go, well, look at that, man. I've got, it, got a lot of good stuff in there. You do, but you've got a lot of red in there, too. Or you can scan the room and you can find Jesus and go, oh, you're letting me in because of him, not because of me. So today, do you know Jesus? Is your name written in the book of life? If you've never trusted in Jesus, then today you respond in faith and repentance. You, by faith, trust in what Jesus has done for you, and then you repent and turn away from your sins. And if you do that, then you can have your deeds marked out in the blood of the Lamb. And then for us as believers, we need to, one, celebrate the fact that it's going to be Jesus that gets us into heaven. I love the songs Mike sang this morning, right? What can wash away my sins? Another, but the blood of Jesus. I'm standing on Jesus. That's what we were stinging about today. And then we need to remember that we are fighting from victory, we're not fighting for. The enemy's bound up. Let's go plunder him. Let's take as much back as we can because Jesus is coming soon. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day and thank you for all that you've given us. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for what Jesus has done for all of us who have trusted in him that although we have this book of deeds and it's not gonna be pretty for any of us, for those of us who by faith trusted in Jesus, we can have our sins erased. And then on that final day, the book of the Lamb will be placed over ours and the court sees Jesus and not us. And so we get in and we get to live with Jesus forever because of what he's done, not what we do. And so that ought to be cause for great rejoicing in this room as we stand and sing now. Help us as believers to know that the the enemy is bound and that we now are on a mission to plunder all of his stuff. If there's anyone in here that doesn't know you, as the gospel's been proclaimed, I pray that they would catch me or, or catch a deacon or catch a friend today and say, hey, I came in here and I didn't know Jesus, but today he saved me, he's changed me, and I know that my name is now written in the Lamb's book of life. Thank you, Father. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. If you would, please stand. Oh, Lord, my God.